Now please open your Bibles to Philippians chapter 3. Our passage for this morning is Philippians 3, 17 through 21. Once again, that's Philippians 3, 17 through 21. A couple of weeks ago, I shared the story of John Hooper with you. John Hooper was burned at the stake on February 9th, 1555, primarily due to his position on the Lord's table, of all things. When his captors brought him to the stake to be burned, he refused the bonds that were meant to fasten him to the stake, stating that he would remain in the fire voluntarily. Regardless, they still partially bound him, and that was a good thing, I suppose, because once they set about to burn John Hooper, they couldn't get the fire to light. And the gunpowder they put around his neck to speed his execution, that also didn't work. All in all, it took some 45 minutes to kill him. It was an incredibly slow and excruciatingly painful death. And still, John Hooper never relented. According to John Fox, he never tried to escape his execution. He remained relatively calm and composed, even calling out to Jesus until the very end of his life. As Christians, we find stories like that encouraging. I know that's probably strange, right, considering the subject matter. After all, we're talking about someone's martyrdom, their death, but the reason is because that martyrdom testifies to someone who finished their race well. That's something we all hope that we would do as well, if faced with the same situation. And so we find stories like John Hooper's encouraging because they show us by example that it can be done. It is possible to remain faithful to Christ even in the face of great suffering. Less encouraging are stories like Thomas Cranmer. Thomas Cranmer, it could be argued, was the reformer primarily responsible for bringing the Reformation to England. I'm sure you've all heard about Henry VIII at some point and his six different wives and how his desire for a male heir ultimately led to a split between the Church of England and the Roman Catholic Church. Well, the clergyman that supported the annulment of Henry's first marriage, thus making that split with Rome possible, was none other than Thomas Cranmer. He was installed as Archbishop of Canterbury in 1533, which effectively made him the leader of the Church of England. In 1534, just a year later, he helped lead the Church of England out of the Roman Catholic Church. He's the architect of both the 39 Articles and the Book of Common Prayer, which serve as the theological and liturgical foundation of the Church of England. Hopefully you get my point. If you're looking for just one guy that you could turn to and say, this guy is the founder of the Church of England, then Thomas Cranmer is probably your guy. Well, you can only imagine what that meant for Cranmer when the daughter of Henry's first wife, the very Catholic Mary I, took the throne. As you've heard me say before, she's known today as Bloody Mary because of her very violent backlash against the principal leaders of the English Reformation. And that backlash was certainly going to include the man who led that Reformation, Thomas Cranmer. 
In the words of J.C. Ryle, from the moment that Mary came to the English throne, Cranmer was marked for destruction. It is probably uh, that there was no English divine whom the unhappy queen regarded with such rancor and hatred. She never forgot that her mother's divorce was brought about by Cranmer's advice, and she never rested till he was burned. And yet in spite of this, when the Protestant Edward VI died and his sister Mary I ascended the throne, Cranmer stood fast. He knew what was coming and he advised others to flee England, but he himself remained. When it was rumored that he authorized the use of the Mass in Canterbury Cathedral, he responded by saying, All the doctrine and religion by our said sovereign Lord King Edward VI is more pure and according to God's word than any that has been used in England these thousand years. However, it seems that if there was one reformer that the Catholic authorities wanted to flip, one reformer that Mary and the rest wanted to recant his faith instead of just merely die, it was Thomas, Thomas Cranmer. And unfortunately, over time, Cranmer lost his resolve. He was eventually arrested, after which he sat in prison for nearly two years awaiting trial. Once he was finally put to trial, Cranmer fully admitted to the charges set before him, but then, when the, then the trial of Cranmer's associates, Hugh Latimer and Nicholas Ridley, commenced, after which they were found guilty and condemned to death. And Cranmer was taken to a tower to watch them burn. About a month later, Rome stripped Cranmer of his bishopric, effectively giving the secular authorities permission to decide his fate, and things would have been looking quite grim at this point for Cranmer. But then, interestingly enough, over the next couple of months, Cranmer was actually treated quite well. He was taken out of prison. He was allowed to debate the merits of the Reformation with some of his opponents. He was treated with dignity and respect. And it was at this time that, sadly, Cranmer began to sign the first of several recantations. According to John Fox, the recantations were more general at first and then gradually made more specific which he believes was done as a kind of ploy to warm Cranmer up to the idea of apostasy by a matter of degrees. By March of 1556, Cranmer had completely renounced the entirety of his work on the English Reformation. Towards its, its conclusion, the last recantation reads, he says, Finally, in all things I profess that I do not otherwise believe than the Catholic Church and the Church of Rome holdeth and teacheth. I am sorry that I ever held or thought otherwise. And I beseech Almighty God that of His mercy He will vouchsafe to forgive me whatsoever I have offended against God or His church. And also I desire and beseech all Christian people to pray for me. And all such have been deceived either by mine example or doctrine. I require them by the blood of Jesus Christ that they will return to the unity of the church that we may all be of one mind without schism or division. And just like that, the leader of the English Reformation renounced the English Reformation. 
It appears that Cramer believed that if he recanted, then his life would be spared. Unfortunately, what he didn't realize at the time was that Mary had already determined to put him to death no matter what. His his recantation would profit him nothing. Mary ordered that a sermon be preached on the day of his execution. And dressed in his rags, Cranmer was made to stand before the church as the preacher spoke of the many masses that would be offered up on behalf of his soul after his death. Cranmer had been told that he would have an opportunity to publicly recant his so-called heresy at the conclusion of this sermon, and he had even submitted a statement that he planned to deliver in writing beforehand. However, when the time came to address the assembly, Cranmer deviated from the script. He spoke from the book of James, in the words of Fox, upon the danger of the love of the world, the duty of obedience to their majesties, of love to one another, and the necessity of the rich in ministering to the wants of the poor. And then he said, And now I come to the great thing which so troubleth my conscience more than anything that I ever did or said in my whole life, and that is the setting abroad of a writing contrary to truth, which now here I renounce and refuse. As things written with my hand, contrary to truth, which I thought in my heart, and written for fear of death, and to save my life, if it might be. And that is, all such bills or papers which I have written or signed with my hand since my degradation, wherein I have written many things untrue. And forasmuch as my hand uh, hath offended, writing contrary to my heart, therefore my hand shall be first to be punished. For when I come to the fire, it shall be first burned." And as for the Pope, I refuse him as Christ's enemy and Antichrist with all his false doctrine. And at that, Cranmer was cut off. The preacher ordered, lead the heretic away, and Cranmer was immediately taken to the stake and burned. While he was there, something rather interesting happened. Cranmer apparently raised his left hand to heaven and then stretched out his right into the flames where in the words of Fox, he held it unshrinkingly into the fire until it was burnt to a cinder, even before his body was injured, frequently exclaiming, this unworthy right hand. His dying words were, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. I see the heavens open and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. It's hard to know what to do with a Thomas Cranmer, is it not? On the one hand, you could say that after a moment of weakness, Cranmer repented and bore witness to the gospel with tremendous boldness and courage. That's the route that J.C. Ryle takes in his book, A Light from Old Times. He says, of all the martyrs, strange to say, none at the last moment showed more physical courage than Cranmer did. Nothing, in short, in all his life became him so well as the manner of his leaving it. Greatly had he sinned, but greatly he repented. Like Peter, he fell, but like Peter, he rose again. Personally, I I tend to agree with this assessment. Still, there's a kind of uneasiness about Cranmer's testimony, is there not? Those recantations still cast a shadow over the brilliance of his death. One can't help but wonder, would he have borne up so bravely if Mary had not decided to put him to death anyways? If he had only been allowed to live, would he have stood by his recantations? It's kind of hard to know now because he only took back those recantations after he had nothing left to lose. 
And so now we can never fully know if the architect of the English Reformation truly believed the things he fought for. You know this story well, do you not? I would assume we've all seen this happen before in our own lives at one point or another. Maybe it was a close Christian friend. Maybe it was a trusted pastor. But you've probably known someone who at one time seemed to be running well. And then something happened. That fire that once burned inside them started to die out. And by a matter of degrees, their love for Jesus grew cold. Until finally, you realized they weren't walking in the faith anymore. I think of a former pastor I once knew. I didn't know him very well personally, but he attended my church. One day, our Sunday school teacher didn't show up. And so I went roving about the hallways of the church looking for someone to teach our class. I found this guy. I knew he had been a pastor once. thought, hey, this guy can probably teach a class on the spot. And so I asked him if he might be willing to, to teach our class for the day. He sort of reluctantly agreed. And then he proceeded to teach the best Sunday school class that I had ever been a part of on the spot without any preparation. I still remember it was about the resurrection. And I had never heard anyone explain and defend the resurrection so powerfully as he did that morning, unprompted. So you can imagine my shock when I heard a couple of years later he left his wife for another woman and had completely turned his back on the faith. I still think about that class every now and then, and I wonder, what happened? How could a man who understood the resurrection so well and to whom it had obviously meant so much at at least one time just abandon all of that? You ever wrestle with that? I tell you, if you don't, you should. Because, friends, if that man can walk away from the faith, then so can you. If the founder of the English Reformation can walk away from the faith, recant everything that he had worked for, fought for, for 20 plus years, so can you. I know we sometimes talk about the perseverance of the saints, and we like to find comfort in the fact that those who are truly in Jesus cannot abandon the faith. And this is true. But what we should never interpret that doctrine to mean is that we must not make efforts to remain in the faith. It's like what we've, what we've been discussing over the past couple of weeks. Paul interpreted the fact that he was in Christ and being supplied with a righteousness that comes from Christ to mean that he must strive with every ounce of his being to attain this conduct that conforms to Christ. Peter gives us this same exhortation in 2 Peter 1, 10 through 11, when he says, Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election, for if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. For in this way there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Now, do you hear that? He sets out certain points, certain characteristics, which he says will prevent a Christian from falling, and then he exhorts the Christian to pursue these characteristics in order to make their calling and election sure. Whatever the sovereignty of God and salvation means, 
What it most definitely does not mean is that the Christian can just kick up their feet and do nothing about their salvation and sanctification since, you know, Jesus has got it all under control. That, I've pointed out, is immature thinking. The Apostle Paul certainly didn't adopt that attitude, and neither should you. Perseverance occurs as the Christian makes efforts to abide in the faith. Now, they abide through the strength that Jesus supplies, no doubt, but their mind is still engaged in the work. And so it's worth asking yourself, what is the mindset of the apostate? What causes a person to apostatize, to abandon their faith in Jesus? What kind of thoughts or priorities lead them to make that decision? And that's what we're going to explore together this morning. For several weeks now, we've been discussing in one form or another the concept of downgrade in the church. Downgrade, once again, refers to this momentum that can build as a church or even individual Christians make concessions to the faith. It's just like what the Catholic Church did to, to Cramner. They didn't start by asking him to deny the whole of Protestant doctrine. Instead, they got him to sign a small recantation first just to get him rolling downhill to get him comfortable signing a bigger recantation and then a bigger one and so on and so on until finally he had denied the whole Reformation. We've said that this is how apostasy often happens. It isn't instant. It occurs over time as Christians make one small compromise after another. Well, in this section of Philippians, that seems to be the subject that Paul is addressing. The Philippians are suffering for their faith and at least some of them seem to be considering whether to alleviate this pain with a very subtle kind of theological compromise. Paul has been exhorting them to stand firm for the faith by pointing to his example. He's been telling them to suffer like him. He's been showing them the kind of mindset that accompanies his perseverance. Now this morning he points to another example. Only this example is one to avoid. And that's the example of the apostate. And he says, do not think like this. Avoid that example. The focus, once again, are the priorities and even attitudes that shape a person's actions. Just as Paul pointed to the values that caused him to persevere in the preceding verses, so also now does he point to the priorities that shape the apostate's departure from the faith. And as he walks the Philippians through this, he does it so that they might first identify and then avoid that kind of thinking in themselves. Again, he's showing them where the root of this attitude of compromise comes from, and he's addressing it to encourage his hearers to stand firm for the gospel. So the lesson we should take away from this passage is how to avoid apostasy, how to survive downgrade. And what you need to be considering as we walk through this text this morning is, is this kind of thinking present in me? Am I in danger of perhaps one day abandoning my faith? Let's see what the Apostle Paul has to teach us on this subject. The passage, once again, is Philippians 3, 17 through chapter 4. I think I said through verse 21 before. It's actually through chapter 4, verse 1. And in this passage, the Apostle Paul says this, Brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. 
For many of whom I have often told you and now tell you, even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction. Their God is their belly and they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. But our citizenship is in heaven. And from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like His glorious body by the power that enables Him even to subject all things to Himself. In this morning's passage, we see Paul's concern for the Philippians come full circle. Back in chapter 3, Paul began this section by writing, verse 1, Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord to write the same things to you is no trouble for me and is safe for you. Now he concludes this section after giving this instruction by saying, chapter 4, verse 1, Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. Once again, that helps you understand the purpose of this section. Paul is writing so that his brothers would stand firm in the Lord. And what's apparent by this point is the extreme feeling with which Paul gives this exhortation. He calls the Philippians his brothers and his beloved. He says he loves and longs for them. He even calls him them his, quote, joy and crown. And that last statement is probably not insignificant. As one commentator notes, only one other time does Paul use this phrase, joy and crown, and that's in 1 Thessalonians 2.19 with reference to the Thessalonians. Paul refers to both the Philippians and the Thessalonians as his joy and crown. And as this commentator points out, that's probably fairly significant given that Paul probably wrote these letters years apart. And yet both the Philippians and the Thessalonians are part of this Macedonian group of churches who Paul is so careful to note in 2 Corinthians were so extremely generous in their giving in spite of their affliction and poverty. These are churches who have suffered with Paul and endured with Paul. And it would seem that the result is they hold a special place in Paul's heart. Paul loves these sweet brothers dearly. And so he's incredibly concerned at the thought that some of them, after enduring such hardship, and after demonstrating such wonderful Christ-like fruit, that they might yet abandon the faith. This feeling that we see bubbling up in this passage helps us to identify, I think, the enemies that Paul refers to here. Verse 17, Paul continues this exhortation which started in verse 15 to imitate his example and to keep their eyes on those who walk according to this example. But then verse 18, he explains, For many of whom I have often told you and now tell you, even with tears walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. One might wonder who these enemies are. And the decision has the potential to affect the way we read this passage. For instance, one option, and perhaps the most common interpretation, is to say that Paul's referring to the Jews. The Philippians, remember, seem to be falling sway to this external Jewish influence. They're likely even considering the adoption of circumcision in order to avoid the persecution brought on by these outsiders. Up in verses 2 through 3, Paul issues a strong warning against these Jews, saying, Look out for the dogs, look out for the evildoers, look out for those who mutilate the flesh, for we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. So perhaps what Paul is doing here 
is warning these Philippians that these Jews are actually enemies of the cross of Christ. Remember, the Philippians might not have entirely seen that. They saw them as spiritual authorities. Paul might be warning them to identify that. If that's the case, then this whole bit about their God being their belly, that would probably refer to the dietary restrictions they observe. This part about glorying in their shame may refer to the practice of circumcision. That seems like a strong possibility. The only problem is that it would seem rather unusual for Paul to have to tell the Philippians that these individuals walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. You look here at verse 18, and Paul reminds the Philippians that he has often told them about this point, and that he tells them about it now even again. And the idea seems to be that he's warning them about a class of enemy that's fairly difficult to identify. That wouldn't seem to be necessary if he's referring to outsiders, and most especially the people who are likely responsible for the Philippians' present persecution. The same could be said with reference to the second option, and that would be the Romans. Remember, this is probably a state-sponsored persecution. And that point is intensified here when Paul says in verses 20 and 21, But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like His glorious body by the power that enables Him to subject even to subject all things to himself. That term citizenship there in verse 20 is significant because as I mentioned before, Philippi is a Roman colony. It was the location of an important battle and after that, the battle, the emperor made Philippi an official Roman colony granting Roman citizenship to its inhabitants. The emperor also relocated many Roman veterans to this city, meaning Philippi would have been a place where people took pride in the fact that they were Roman. This would have made it particularly difficult for the Philippians to suffer this kind of state-sponsored persecution. And so when Paul reminds them that their citizenship is in heaven, it's probably a deliberate contrast to the status and privileges that they're having to give up to follow Christ. Just like Paul had to give up his status as a Jew to follow Christ, so also did the Philippians have to surrender their status as Romans. So again, maybe these are the enemies that Paul is referring to. He's talking about the Romans who are attacking the Philippians for their faith. It's just that again, why would Paul need to tell them that the Romans are enemies to Christ multiple times? You would think that that would be fairly obvious by this point. Even further, while you might envision a scenario where Paul is weeping over his fellow Jews, it's a bit harder to envision him having the same type of emotional attachment to the Romans and to the point where he's telling the Philippians about their opposition, quote, with tears. So I think probably the best option is to see this as a group of people who claim some type of relationship with Christ. This is why Paul is having to tell the Philippians multiple times that they're actually enemies. It's why he's telling them to keep their eyes on his example and on those who follow his example, not theirs. It's because these are enemies coming from within the church. They look like Christians, at least superficially, but they're actually enemies of the cross. And how can you tell the difference? Well, Paul says it's by whether or not they imitate his example. There are some who claim to know Jesus, but they don't actually follow Jesus. And the way you can tell is that they aren't governed by the same set of principles that govern 
Paul. They don't live in light of the hope of the resurrection. This is why Paul expresses this fact with tears. It's because these are individuals who probably at one time claimed to follow Christ. Again, these, these are his joy and crown. And they've since turned away from the faith. They've succumbed to the pressure of persecution. And they've adopted key compromises which deny the gospel. In short, it's probably a situation very much like Thomas Cranmer. These are Christians who once flourished in the faith, and while they still may claim to be Christians, they've actually denied essential elements to the faith, and they're now enemies to the cross. Paul's heartbroken over these apostates. And he wants to keep his joy, his crown, safe from their deceptive influence. And so now he must, with tremendous pain and sorrow, actually warn the Philippians about them. He has to warn the Philippians about his friends. There's a situation very like that, very much like that between David and Absalom. That's probably the closest example I, I can think of in the Scripture. Absalom rebels against his father, and so David, of course, he must fight him. But when David hears news of his death, rather than be feeling, being filled with joy and relief, he's actually filled with tremendous sorrow because of how much he loved his son even still. This is the type of attitude that Paul is bringing to the table when he warns the Philippians about these enemies to the cross of Christ. So then the point of this passage is to warn the Philippians about their apostasy, which he does by contrasting their example with his. What does Paul tell them? What's causing this apostasy? What's leading these brothers out of the faith? What's the kind of thinking that the Philippians must avoid if they hope to steer clear of sharing in this same fate? I think it can be described in three points all of which come from verse 19. Really, you could say they come from verses 19 through 21 because in 20 and 21, Paul contrasts the thinking of the believer with these apostates. But in combined, I think these sections really form a mirror image of each other. But really, verse 19 is where Paul identifies the apostates' thinking most clearly. And it can be summarized in three points. And that's their glory, their God, and their goal. Their glory, their God, and their goal. And if you want to remain in the faith and survive the downgrade when it comes, then you must avoid these three characteristics in your own thinking. Let's look now at the first of these three points. We're going to look at just this one this week, and then we'll come back and look at the next two next week. And by the way, if you can't tell already, I'm actually moving backwards through verse 19. So follow along with me, starting at the end of verse 19. First, we have their glory. End of verse 19, Paul notes that they, quote, glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. Verse 19 is an incredibly difficult verse to interpret, and by that I don't mean it's a difficult verse to translate. I mean it's a difficult verse to understand. Paul says some things here that are kind of unclear. I mean, what does he mean by their God being their belly? What does he mean by this group glorying in their shame? It's all sort of vague. However, the key component in this phrase, and I think is this, really the entire verse, is this last clause with their minds set on earthly things. That seems to be the point that Paul is driving at 
in the entire verse. The problem with these individuals fundamentally is that they set their hope on the wrong thing. They set it here on earth in, instead of where it ought to be, where they ought to put their attention, where Paul puts it, and that's with Christ in heaven. Again, Paul's already made this point up above when he says that he suffered the loss of all things in order to gain Christ, when he says that he forgets what behind, what's behind him and strains forward to what lies ahead, pressing on toward the goal of the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Here in verses 20 and 21, he even repeats this concept saying, but our citizenship is in heaven and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. So when Paul says that they glory in their shame, He's probably engaging in a bit of irony. Irony, just so we're clear, is when you use words to express the opposite of their meaning, like what we think of as sarcasm, just technically speaking, it's a form of irony. So when someone makes a mistake, right, and someone else says, oh, that's just wonderful, or, you know, you're a real genius, right, that's, that's irony. That's most likely what Paul is doing here. He's making a play on words. The word for glory here is doxa, and it's actually a noun, not a verb. Paul literally says, whose glory is their shame. Glory in this sense refers to honor or prestige or even praise. And the reason why the ESV treats this like a verb is because of this preposition that follows this in that's there. It implies either that they're ascribing glory to something, meaning they're putting their hope and trust in it, or, and I think this is the more likely option, they're seeking glory through something. Overall, the idea seems to be that they're seeking a kind of honor or prestige, which at the return of Christ will actually become their shame, their disgrace in His presence. You can see the contrast here, can't you? They want a kind of glory, but then when Christ returns from heaven in His glory, that glory will actually become darkness. And they'll be put to shame. What might that glory be? Well, best I can tell, I think it's most likely their social status. I think that's the most likely explanation. Again, keep in mind, Paul has just talked about the status that he surrendered as a Jew for the sake of Christ. And as we come down here to verse 20, he talks about the mindset of the one who perseveres, right? He talks about their status as a citizen of the kingdom of God. If I had to guess, I'd say that probably the main reason for this apostasy is that these believers were afraid of losing the status that they once held before they were a Christian. That's a fairly common fear, is it not? That's something I think we all experience. We realize that if we commit to Jesus, we can be called all kinds of things. We'll be called ignorant, hateful, narrow-minded, you name it. And for some people, that's just too much. They want to believe in Jesus, but once they see what that costs them in terms of their social status, that's just too much, and so they walk away. I tend to think that this is what Paul is driving at here. He's saying that they seek glory, status, through what is actually this incredibly shameful act, this turning away from the faith out of cowardice and fear. And it will actually turn out to their disgrace in the day of Christ's appearing. In fact, what's interesting about this word shame, aiskune, it's just the noun form of the same word that Paul uses for ashamed back in chapter 1, verse 20. 
There, Paul talks about appearing before Caesar, and he says that it is his eager expectation, quote, that I will not be ashamed, but that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. And I don't know if you remember, but I said that the point there is that Paul isn't going to be intimidated by the moment. That's what he's saying. Like if you've ever been starstruck or, or speechless in the presence of someone you respect, some celebrity or something like that, that's what Paul is saying he's confident won't happen when he appears before Caesar. Caesar's glory, so to speak, isn't going to make him back down. I think this is what Paul is saying is going to happen to these individuals in the presence of Christ. They've abandoned Christ to seek praise and security in Caesar. But when Jesus appears in all his glory, they're going to be ashamed in his presence. They're going to be left speechless. They're going to recognize their error and they're going to be unable to provide an answer for the betrayal they've committed against him. Their glory is this thing that is actually going to put them to shame. Now, whether that's precisely what Paul means here or not, the point is still the same. Their root problem is that they've set their mind on things here on earth rather than on Christ in heaven. They want the earthly praise that comes from men, for instance, rather than the praise that comes from Jesus. Or if he's not talking about their own personal glory, they're still putting their hope, their trust, their confidence, their joy in things that will actually put them to shame at the return of Christ. That could be the love of money, or pleasure, or even their life, their very physical well-being. Point is, it's something temporal and tangible instead of spiritual and eternal. Their joy is here on earth instead of with Christ in heaven. When you really get down to it, this is the root problem with apostates. They're too nearsighted. Their mental framework isn't large enough. They're making judgments only by what their eyes can see, and they're seeking out whatever can bring them the most immediate reward. In short, they're not patient enough. They experience a little bit of pain, and then they give up before they can gain the prize that follows. It's an old, old story. If you love this world and everything it offers too much, then you will love Jesus too little and you'll abandon him at the sign of trouble. And Jesus talks about this in the parable of the soils. Of course, we read this for our scripture reading this morning. In that parable, you have the road soil, of course, where the truth gets snatched away before it can take root. There's the good soil, right, whose roots sink deep down into the ground and it bears fruit. But then there's the rocky soil and the thorny soil. The seed that's sown on the rocky ground pops right up at first, looks strong, but then quickly withers and dies under the heat of the sun. When Jesus explains, he says this happens because, quote, he has no root in himself, but endures for a while, and when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately he falls away. They can't stand the pressure of rejection for the sake of Christ. And Jesus explains why. He says it's because they have no root in themselves. There's no depth of understanding, no maturity of thought. They haven't truly, truly owned all that the gospel entails, including the difficulty of it. It's a, it's a superficial acceptance, and their faith, therefore, is very shallow. 
as part of what happened with these wayward Philippians. The other part is addressed with the thorny soil. The seed sown among the thorns also springs up, but then it's choked out by the weeds. And again, Jesus explains, He says, This is the one who hears the word, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word, and it proves unfruitful. This is also what happened with the Philippians. Someone can be on the thorny soil in peacetime. They can walk away when there's absolutely no external pressure. But if this is you, if that's what your concerns are, then you can bet that once the heat of persecution comes, it's going to accelerate that process. And that's what happened with them. This underlying desire for ease and comfort in their life was exposed by the threat of persecution. And they wanted that more than Jesus. And so they walked away. Friends, this means that if you don't love Jesus more than anything else, then you will not persevere in the faith. There's only one way to persevere, one way to remain faithful, and that can be in the sense of endurance and suffering, or it can even be in the sense of merely performing your mission, being a faithful witness to Christ. Either way, there's only one way to remain faithful, and that's to love what you have in heaven more than what you have here. If you don't love what you have in heaven more than what you have here, then you cannot do it. Something will eventually come along that challenges what you love most, pit your love for that against your love for Jesus, and at that point you'll abandon Christ to keep the thing you really love. That's what these apostates have done. And so if you want to avoid their fate, then you'll abandon their thinking as well. Of course, that's easier said than done, right? It's, it's one thing to say that we should love Jesus most. It's another thing entirely to do it. So how do we fix that? What can we do to increase our love for Jesus and fix our eyes on heaven? I think we're going to discover at least part of that answer in the next two points from this passage, which we'll take a closer look at next week. In the meantime, I would offer you this suggestion. Guard your heart against earthly pleasure. Guard your heart against earthly pleasure. Now, please listen closely to what I'm saying here because I'm trying to be precise when I say this. I'm not saying, I'm not saying, don't engage in earthly pleasure. I'm not advocating a religious asceticism which says take no pleasure in this life, punish the flesh, embrace pain as a way of keeping your soul safe. We're going to talk about that more next week. Paul does advocate a type of bodily discipline, for instance, but he doesn't advocate for that. He actually condemns those who go around saying that sort of a thing. It's okay to enjoy the blessings that God gives you in this life. I think of Paul's words in 1 Timothy 4, 4 through 5, for instance, where he rejects those who want to forbid marriage and advocate for abstinence for certain from certain types of foods. By saying this, he says, For everything created by God is good, and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving, for it is made holy by the word of God in prayer. So don't misunderstand me when I say this. It's okay to enjoy the blessings that God gives you in your life. All I'm saying is, at the same time, guard your heart against those blessings so that the gift meant to give glory to the Creator doesn't transform into an idol. It's rather interesting, going back to Thomas Cranmer for a moment. 
You know what finally caused him to crack? It doesn't seem to be the two plus years of imprisonment. It doesn't even seem to have been the threat of death or personally witnessing his friends burn. No, it seems the thing that finally did Cranmer in was letting him out of prison and treating him with dignity and respect. Once Cranmer's enemies stopped treating him as an enemy and instead promised him friendship, the enticement became too alluring. According to John Fox, he says his open, generous nature was more easily to be seduced by a liberal conduct than by threats and fetters. When Satan finds the Christian proof against one attack, he tries another. And what form is so seductive as smiles, rewards, and power after a long, painful imprisonment? Thus it was with Cranmer. His enemies promised him his former greatness if he would recant, as well as the queen's favor. And this, this at the very time they knew that his death was determined in council. You see, the thing that set Cranmer apart from the rest of the English reformers is that Cranmer had long enjoyed the accoutrements that come with being the Archbishop of Canterbury and the leader of the English Reformation. He had had the king's ear. He had been lauded as the leader of the Church of England. He moved in the circles of wealth and power. And it would seem that over time his heart had grown too fond of these treasures. And so that's what ultimately made him crack. It wasn't the threat of taking away his life. It was the promise of giving back his idols. It wasn't the heat of the sun that got to him. It was the thorn and the thistles. To his credit, Cranmer seems to have recognized this by the end. Again, the text he spoke on immediately before his death was James 5, 1 through 3 which says, Come now, you rich, weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Your riches have rotted and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver have corroded, and their corrosion will be evidence against you and will eat your flesh like fire. You have laid up treasure in the last days. He proceeded to speak against a love for the world because he knew that this was the sin he was guilty of. That's what happened to Demas, right? According to Colossians 4.14, Demas was there while Paul was under house arrest in Rome. He may well have been present when Paul wrote this very letter to the Philippians. This is a guy who understood the cost of following Christ and who had been schooled in the arts of suffering by none other than Paul himself. And yet at the end of Paul's life, as he's about to die, what do we learn about Demas? Paul says in 2 Timothy, For Demas, in love for this present world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. Demas drifted. And what caused that? Was it the fear of suffering for Christ that did it? No, again, Demas seems to have been well acquainted with that. So what was it? Paul says it was his love for this world. I think again about that former pastor I mentioned to you earlier this morning. Now, I wasn't real close to the situation once he did finally walk away from the faith, so I can't be entirely sure how it happened. But from the way it was related to me, it wasn't like he walked away from the faith because he finally determined that the resurrection wasn't true. 
Meaning it wasn't as if he was being disingenuous when he taught that Sunday school class. The reason why he would explain the resurrection so well and so powerfully is because it had meant something to him. He wasn't faking it. So what pulled him away? And from the way I understand it, what happened is he joined a gym. He got into shape and he ended up finding someone there who thought he was attractive who he also thought was attractive. And he just decided he wanted that relationship more. He wasn't saying no to Jesus as much as he was saying yes to the world. Are you starting to catch my drift here? It isn't just pain that can pull us away from Christ, but pleasure as well, the things that we delight in. John Fox has it right. Satan will sometimes use smiles and rewards and power to draw the Christian away from the faith just as much as he'll use threats and punishment. In fact, I think if you do a survey of Scripture, what you'll find is that this is his plan A, actually. Persecution isn't plan A, it's plan B. He starts with the promise of reward, and then when that doesn't work, he resorts to punishment to try to silence those that he can't sway. That's what he does with Jesus in the wilderness, right? He entices him with the promise of reward. And then only after Jesus proves incorruptible does he try to destroy him. You go to the garden. And how does he turn Adam? Does he use intimidation and fear? No, it's with the promise of becoming like God. It's just like with Mary and Thomas Cramner. Satan doesn't want to destroy us. He wants to turn us. What good is a dead Christian to Satan, right? What he wants is a live apostate. What he desires is a living idolater. And so he presents the idol in all its glory first, hoping to capture the heart of the worshiper. And then only after he's failed does he resort to intimidation and threats to try to cajole the inner desires of the heart up to the surface to expose the secret hypocrites like a Thomas Cramner. And then if he fails at that, he resorts to death as a way of trying to silence his opponents. Point being, apostasy happens in peacetime just as much as it happens in times of persecution, perhaps even more so. So I realize that we're talking about persecution as we move through Philippians, but the lessons here aren't only applicable if you're suffering for the cause of Christ. The kind of thinking that draws Christians away in times of persecution can draw them away in times of peace as well. Indeed, those attitudes are probably developed in times of peace. So even though you're probably not currently suffering for your faith, or at least not to any great degree, at the same time you need to consider what Paul is saying here. The apostate is drawn away because their mind is set on earthly things. In fact, did you know that the threat of this kind of temptation is so strong that Jesus even goes as far as to advocate taking a preemptive strike to address it? Think about what he says on the love of money in Matthew 6. He says, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Now, you all can see the guiding principle there. Can you not? Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The concept is that your, your heart will follow what you're invested in. 
I don't know about you, but the way I'm typically inclined to think about that verse is to say, I need to invest in heavenly things then. Meaning, I think about what I need to do positively. I need to invest in spiritual things so that my hope can rest in heaven. But what shouldn't be missed is the negative component in that command. Jesus says, do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth. And why not? I mean, you know, he says, for, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Meaning he's, he's not only advocating that you invest in spiritual things, he's also actively warning you about the endless accumulation of material wealth. And, and why would that be? Is it because it's a sin to be rich? No, it's not a sin to be rich. The Bible often speaks of financial prosperity as a blessing from the Lord. It even refers to it as a kind of goal for the wise man. So why would Jesus say that? It's because riches, though a blessing, can also be an incredible snare. That's precisely what Paul calls them in 1 Timothy 6. He says, But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is, is a root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. Now it's the love of money that's the problem, right? Not money itself. That's why I say guard your heart. Your, your problem is your heart, not money. But again, do you know what Jesus says is one way of guarding your heart against the love of money? It's by actively giving it away. He's saying your heart will follow wherever your treasure is, so the way you direct it is by actively transferring your money out of this world and into heaven. That's an incredibly wise piece of counsel, is it not? The idea is that you can't love this world too much if you don't have anything in it to love. Again, you see this all the time. Who are the ones who tend to have the strongest faith? It isn't the rich young rulers, is it? Who have everything going for them in this life and opportunity stretching out in front of them endlessly on the, into the horizon? No, it's the poor in spirit. It's those who mourn. It's the meek according to the Sermon on the Mount. James even says, it's the poor in this world whom God has chosen to be rich in faith. And you know why that is? Do you know how that works? It's because those who have little in this life are less inclined to be so firmly attached to it, whereas those who have much can have a much more difficult decision to make. This is Psalm 73. You guys know that psalm, right? The psalmist is confused by the fact that the wicked seem to prosper so easily. He thinks that he's been a fool to follow God because all it's brought him is suffering. And then by the end of the psalm, he learns that actually God has set the wicked in slippery places. Their prosperity was actually a sign of God's judgment. He was making it so they'd never be inclined to repent. He was sealing their fate with their ease and comfort. Friends, what you should take away from what Paul is saying here in Philippians 3.19 is simply this. Be on guard against those things that make you happy in this world. Again, I'm not saying don't enjoy them. No, do enjoy them with gladness and thanksgiving. Give God glory for the blessings He brings you in your life. But beware of those things as well. Make sure that you treat them as the gifts they are and not as an idol. 
That promotion at work, for instance, can be a tremendous blessing. But just be careful. It can be a snare as well if you don't treat it right. You might find yourself investing yourself more and more and more into your career because that's what you care about more than anything more than Christ himself. If you've been blessed with a spouse and children, thank God for them. They're a wonderful blessing from the Lord. Just be sure that your love for them doesn't replace your love for Jesus. And with that, I'd like to close with just two questions for you to go home and think about this morning. First, what do you currently have in your life that might draw you away from Jesus? What do you currently have in your life that might draw you away from Jesus? Again, blessings are good. Be thankful for them. Enjoy them. But what do you have in your life that you enjoy so much that it has the potential to overtake your love for Christ? Take stock of your life and be proactive in guarding yourself against those kinds of idols. Second, what do you want in your life but don't have? And how might God be using the denial of that thing to draw you closer to Himself? Let me say that one more time. What do you want in your life but don't have? And how might God be using the denial of that thing to draw you closer to Himself? In short, what this passage should teach us is that you can be thankful for the things you don't have in your life just as much as you can be thankful for the things you do have. Because the absence of those things may very well be in and of itself a blessing from God designed to keep you close to Him. So we don't need to grumble about the things we don't have. We can rejoice actually over God's kindness to us in denying us the very things that could lead us astray. This is one of the great things about the Christian life. We have reason to rejoice in all things, both when we have much and when we have little. So don't just guard your heart as you rejoice over the things you do have. Rejoice as well over the mercy of God in denying you the things you don't have. Next week, we'll look at the next two points in this passage. And this is going to take us deeper into the mindset of the apostate, what causes their apostasy. I think that's going to give us an even better idea of what we must do to set our eyes on Jesus and persevere in the faith. And with that in mind, I strongly encourage you to come back and join us for part two of surviving the downgrade next week. Let's pray.